0: This talk was given by Frank Kyosho Fallon at Zen Mountain Monastery. Kyosho is a senior student in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation, please visit our website at zmm.mro.org. Thanks for your support. Hello, everyone. Today I would like to speak about our righteous mind, this is the way that we are sometimes when we are very concerned about something and perhaps overly so. And the way that works is when other people are righteous, We know it, we are judged by them, and we don't like it. But when we ourselves are righteous, we are upholding the good and have trouble seeing a different viewpoint. I've been looking at this issue in my own life because I've always had so much difficulty um, with injustice and other kinds of issues. And I've never been terribly successful in denouncing the wrongdoers. It seems so impersonal when you say it like that, but usually it's your dad or something like that. and. These kinds of arguments are ill-begotten and cause torture. So, in my practice, I've been learning how to see into the Buddhist teachings and how they can help relieve this kind of suffering. And one of the most important things that I've seen is um, that the desire to help is improved when one backs off the righteous tone and moves on to a a tone of concern. And it's funny, it seems as though one is backing away from being earnest In supporting one's cause with the most energy possible. And then the sad thing is that one is driving a stake into the heart of one's own cause and preventing the others from changing their viewpoint because they feel backed into a corner and refuse to change. And this is the sad truth of righteousness. It's a vicious cycle and we both suffer from it. I don't advance my cause and you don't shift in my direction. By not holding to fixed views, by not holding to fixed views, by really not holding to fixed views. And boy, did he mean it. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desire, is not born again into this world. This is a technique technique starts with not holding to fixed views the consequence is the purification of the heart the clarification of one's vision the freedom from sense desires and to not be born again into this world is a metaphorical phrase to be at peace Our study of the Metta Sutta involves chanting from an ancient text whose phrasing is not necessarily clear to a modern person. We understand the English words, but something about being freed from sense desire and not being born again into this world might strike us as outlandish. How could that be joy? How could that be the goal of Buddhist practice? It sounds frozen, escapist, a denial of our very life. Seeking to learn more about these deeper teachings has become part of my life as a senior student, someone who has spent many years walking this path. I find I have a greater need to understand the teachings, and I'm glad about that. My sense of practice has not grown stale, rather I am refreshed and challenged by the Buddha's direct teachings in this sutra, and I want to grow to understand them as more than just a metaphor. I have found it helpful to study root Buddha's teachings in recent years and they often come from Theravadan teachers or publication sources. The seven factors of enlightenment are described in an article by the well-known Sri Lankan monk Piyadasi Thera, who quotes from the Buddha's teachings. Further, says the Buddha, just as monks, speaking to an assembly of monks, in a peaked house, all rafters whatsoever go together to the peak, Slope to the peak, join in the peak. And of them all, the peak is reckoned chief. Even so, monks, the monk who cultivates and makes much of the seven factors of wisdom slopes to Nibbana, inclines to Nibbana, tends to Nibbana. In brief, the seven factors are mindfulness, investigation of the Dharma, energy, rapture or happiness, calm, concentration, and equanimity. As we learn to experience each moment and turn our attention away from wandering deluded thoughts and fantasies, the seven factors of enlightenment are both the methods and guideposts we use to develop our meditation practice. What this means is that we begin to use mindfulness to help us follow these very instructions. We immerse ourselves in our practice, but are also aware of what we are experiencing using the methods as guideposts. We check in with how we are doing, and we can then see how we might be sluggish or repeating critical thoughts or drowning in feelings. The mind of mindful attention perceives clearly that we are in a sluggish moment. Our next step is to bring practice awareness to the very difficulty we are in the middle of experiencing. This means to admit it, I am daydreaming. One rambling thought after another. The next part is really difficult because it's easy, as long as we don't cave in to the temptation to continue the daydream. Instead of extinguishing the bad thing we have just caught ourselves doing, we need to pause. This pause occurs without moral judgment or blame. What it means is, hold really still. Sit up with rounded mudra and maintain awareness of the runaway thoughts. Sit inside yourself observing any difficulty. Feel the distress or the fatigue or whatever is happening. Don't back away or try to change what's going on. Experience the desire to fidget, which might mean changing the subject. It's tricky because our devious mind is accustomed to circumventing regulations. Try not to insist on immediate happiness in exchange for cooperating. Quite frequently, one needs to hold still with some discomfort. We need to be okay for a while with getting what we don't want. The second enlightenment factor is known as keen investigation of the Dharma and is also known as not holding to fixed views. as described in the Metta Sutta. One of the things we can do in order to practice our own difficulties in meditation, and also in personal relations, is to be mindful of this, this my own point of view. Many of our difficulties are created when we try to follow up an argument based on knowing how we are right, determined not to give ground and to prove the other wrong. This way of using our mind is so deeply conditioned that we have trouble seeing it as a something. In this case, as a something that can be questioned. I want to take this back to the beginning for a moment. Pause in the middle of knowing something absolutely for sure where someone else or some other group or some politicos are completely dead wrong. I ask for a pause only to show the state of mind that arises. Practicing with the mind that has views of certainty does not mean our views are necessarily wrong. This is so troublesome. Rushing to bypass the thoughts, feelings, learning process, ability to understand, willingness to listen, and the very courtesy that other beings deserve can become like running into a brick wall. The very topics we feel most urgently can become the most likely to be defeated by trying to use our righteous mind to vanquish the resistance of others. I've been reading a book on the psychology of morality called The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt, a book that was loaned to me by Shugen Roshi, The author is a researcher who felt that the prevailing view in his chosen field was somehow off base. Scientists had come to believe in the theory that human beings are rational actors who make considered decisions based on their moral beliefs in what is good. Jonathan Haidt kept finding contradictions in human behavior that led him to question this theory. With great difficulty and a huge amount of professional resistance, he persevered in exploring his ideas. His basic premise is that we use rational thinking to A, solve technical problems, and B, in moral reasoning, we use rational thinking to skillfully craft justifications after we have done what we want. In other words, he flipped on its head the long standing belief, going all the way back to Plato, that we innately aspire to the highest good, that we make adult decisions based on sound reasoning, and that our personal goal is to have self esteem. The reason Jonathan questioned these complementary traits is that he felt they didn't make biological sense in terms of our need to survive. Viewing humans as creatures who evolved over time, Jonathan observed how humans in groups are skilled beyond all other creatures. Thus, it seemed more likely to him that we need acceptance in groups of hunters, gatherers, tribes without agriculture and so on. Social acceptance in tribal society is pretty much a life or death proposition. So he began studying our behavior in the light of this insight and found loads of confirmation. We all tend to make fun of people who grovel or scheme to get admission into a social group, but that is just the exaggerated end of the spectrum. The important realization is how much more we care about the good opinion of others and how much we will sacrifice to maintain and improve our reputation and our group membership. This is in accord with our evolutionary heritage. The self-sufficient Marlborough Man is thus more of a fiction. I can't go into great detail about this research, but a real nugget of a story the author told made a good impression on me about how to study this phenomenon, how to see ourselves in the mirror. On February 3, 2007, Shortly before lunch, I discovered that I was a chronic liar. I was at home writing a review article on moral psychology when my wife Jane walked by my desk. In passing, she asked me not to leave dirty dishes on the counter where she prepared our baby's food. Her request was polite, but its tone added a postscript as I have asked you a hundred times before, My mouth started moving before hers had stopped. Words came out. Those words linked themselves up to say something about the baby having woken up at the same time that our elderly dog barked to ask for a walk. And I'm sorry, but I just put my breakfast scissors down wherever I could. So there I was at my desk writing about how people automat- automatically fabricate justifications of their gut feelings when suddenly I realized that I had just done the same thing with my wife. I disliked being criticized and I, f- I had felt a flash of negativity by the time Jane had gotten to her third word. Even before I knew why she was criticizing me, I knew I disagreed with her. The instant I knew the content of the criticism, my inner lawyer went to work searching for an excuse. The events I had mentioned happened at different times. In other words, he made the story up on the spot. Only when my wife criticized me did I merge them into a composite image of a harried father with too few hands. I then lied so quickly and convincingly that my wife and I both believed me. <laughs> At first, this research conclusion of Jonathan seemed kind of cynical to me. And I even wondered if it undermined Buddhist teachings and experience. I was thinking about bringing out our inner goodness, our Buddha nature. I asked Shukin about this point And he helped me to see that Jonathan Haidt and others discovered scientifically how our minds actually work and that these findings confirm our experience as Buddhists. Think of how often sitting down with an aspiration to practice well turns into a day at the races, a tour of a penny arcade, a loud mouth screaming on a soapbox, a distracting genie offering wish-fulfillment fantasies. And on it goes. Where did the rational actor go? The sincere practitioner who makes an adult decision that now is the time to set aside preoccupation with worldly tasks and meditate. We are still who we are. But what practitioners discover is that there is a snake pit lurking below the surface of consciousness. It is full of things we are privately scheming about. All the issues we have swept under the carpet are rants, wishes, disenchantments, disagreements, desires, and you name it. It's boiling in there, and we feel like we've been locked in a closet with no relief in sight. This research and our training both confirm that we have a lot of other stuff going on under the surface of the rationally put-together person we start out thinking we are. Feelings, conflicts, Hatreds, petty competition, contempt for others, greedy moves to be the first to the shoe rack. Deny it at your peril. (laughs) Given time, we can also patiently see how we justify what we do, as if we were on the lookout for being punished. We want the things we want but we also want the group to think of us a certain way while we go about getting that. This is concern for reputation in a nutshell. Having a reputation is important to us, maybe more important than self-esteem. At least at first. Over time, we learn to adjust and shift our energy and attention to our true aspirations. Why is this issue so important? Being more in tune with human social nature gives an important insight into how people don't easily change their ideas. Arguing with people by giving reasons is more likely in many cases to communicate criticism and provoke an automatic defensive response. Once people stop truly listening, the agreement to discuss an issue together dissolves. I feel like we need people to listen to what we have to say and that many issues that come up in our sangha are of importance to others as well. What Jonathan Haidt discovered is that in conflict people have a strong evolutionary tendency to retreat into predetermined positions that accord with their social membership identities. On the other hand, when people feel included and accepted, that their views and opinions are welcome and that they have the respect of other people, They show greater willingness to discuss their positions and opinions. Taking a peaceable approach that includes learning about the views and needs of others becomes a more likely path to progress in sharing our own views and needs and really being heard. People trust kind people who act nonviolently and express from their heart. Bridge builders get access. This is a kind of activism that changes minds and hearts. People who meditate and practice become people who learn to listen. Meditation helps us develop peaceful, integrative attitudes of mind that can make engagement with people holding opposing views more productive. Ajahn Amaro is a Theravadan monk an abbot of a monastery in southwest England in the Thai forest tradition of Ajahn Chah, a noted meditation master. He wrote an article in Mindfulness Journal on the subject of not holding to fixed views based on the lines I cited in the Metta Sutta. I discovered this article after starting to write my talk and would like to share some of it with you. The phrase, I'm right, you're wrong, is the archetypal expression of our tendency to attach to views and opinions. If I think it, it must be true. And if you think differently, sorry, but you're wrong. You might be a good person, but you're just wrong. This is the very opposite of the attitude expressed in the last four lines of the metasutta. This is the very opposite of the attitude expressed in the last four lines of the metasutta. In our minds, the two ideas are often meshed together. If I'm right, then however I act on that rightness is good. In terms of the Buddha's teaching, that goodness is not guaranteed. It's not necessarily so, because there's a principle whereby it's not just a matter of what we do but the way we do it. It's not just the opinion we have, or the way we see things, but how we express them that makes the difference. Growing up, I found myself constantly losing arguments with my dad, even though I knew I was right. This way of knowing led me to feel defeated whenever my dad used the tools of the lawyer to make his case, sarcasm, belittling the opponent, casting his own prejudice as moral truth, and so on. And yet he could carefully listen to each thing I had to say before denying its validity. I became so exasperated. Bad! I felt like I had to learn everything about every cause I believed in so well that I could explain it to my dad and finally convince him. I couldn't understand his refusal to see it another way. For example, being against the Vietnam War was something I understood to be a moral issue. As a young man concerned about being drafted, I was against going to war. I thought of my father's Catholic faith as a set of principles that would naturally lead him to understand me. Instead, this issue divided us because Dad saw communists as the greater evil which justified killing them. In reviewing this argument with my father as an argument with only rational principles involved, I fell into the view trap that I discussed earlier. I was arguing with my dad's reasons, but he refused to change his opinion. No matter how I was able to show him that his beliefs contradicted his own theology. When I now see this argument in the light of group membership, a whole different picture emerges. My dad was part of the greatest generation those celebrated heroes of World War II who saved the world from totalitarian regimes in Germany and Japan. The communist takeovers of Eastern Europe, China, North Korea, and North Vietnam scared him thoroughly. His membership in the military defense of the United States became identified in his view as upholding the good. Communism was evil, therefore killing communists was a lesser evil for the greater good. My group membership with those against the war evolved into an unrefined belief in nonviolence that clearly needed some additional work years of student uprisings across the country left a bad taste for many people with more conservative views. I personally wanted to know more deeply a basis for peace that did not require winning an argument in order to deserve to believe what I thought. I wanted to take a strong moral stand. Yet somehow I needed to take into account the views of other people who opposed my view. In Buddhism, I found that living with a basis of peace is the bread and butter of the Dharma teachings. Nonviolent action means more than refusing to carry a weapon It means having an inner attitude of peacefulness and inclusiveness that can be called forth in the middle of a conflict. This is not wishy-washy. I find it extremely difficult to hold what someone is saying when I find their views distasteful, disagreeable, or just plain hateful. To uphold another person means to have a practice of respecting the person and disagreeing with the opinion. Sometimes a structured approach is helpful. In a sense, this is a kind of liturgy of engagement. I sincerely hope that my words will prove helpful in shifting your opinion. If in turn you have valuable things to say that I did not expect to hear, I hope I will remain open-minded and hear you fairly. This kind of inner prayer or invocation can be brought up silently in an attitude of acceptance. Not only does this form of right speech help the other person to hear a different opinion bystanders might be favorably influenced who had not thought about alternatives as you have. The Honeyball Sutra was an early Dharma talk on the subject of conflict. Its name came from how the Buddha's attendant, Ananda, praised the talk, saying its message was like finding a ball of honey when you are tired and hungry. In Thanissaro Bhikkhu's translation of this sutra, the Buddha receives a question from an argumentative old monk known for his quarrelsome, contentious nature. Dandapani, stick in hand, the sakyan, out roaming and rambling for exercise, also went to the great wood. Plunging into the great wood, he went to where the Blessed One sat and asked, What is the contemplative's doctrine? What does he proclaim? The sort of doctrine, friend, where one does not keep quarreling with anyone in the cosmos. Where perceptions no longer obsess the seeker who remains free from perplexity and devoid of craving. Such is my doctrine, such is what I proclaim. When this was said, Dandapani the Sakyan, shaking his head, wagging his tongue, raising his eyebrows so that his forehead was wrinkled in three furrows, left, leaning on his stick. Later, the Buddha described this encounter briefly to the monks and said, when the mind doesn't grab hold of things, when you don't find anything, any opinion, any fixed position to delight in, then that is what brings about the end of quarrels, the end of disputes, malicious speech, the taking up of weapons and of argument, that's where contention comes to an end, where the mind doesn't relish taking hold of this is my position. the experience of harmony. Isn't it incredible to imagine the end of quarreling, the ability to stay present, express your position clearly, and calmly respond with your true feelings? How does it come about At first it feels threatening, being asked to give up, having any opinion at all, to be like a wet noodle in a conflict. Someone who can't even make up their own mind. Do you think that's what the Buddha meant? He was a prince, a skilled diplomat, a highly educated person with substantial life experience. He's referring to a kind of flexibility of inner position that doesn't pick a quarrel or respond to attacks in kind. A person listens attentively, practicing loving awareness, and understands what the other person is expressing. The response may be strong disagreement with the position, but is not a personal attack. If the other person becomes relentless, one pauses or disengages until it is possible to speak mindfully. No one controls our mind, undermines our practice, or robs us of our serenity if we are not attached with expectation to a particular outcome. Because life can be hard, we might feel hurt. With forbearance, we can hold that. Hold still for a minute and then speak. Don't cause an injury to make a point. Reflect on tone of voice. Gentle speech is more persuasive. When another person has no consideration for our point of view, is rude, aggressive, or disconnected, we will not gain their ear or change their view by debating with them. During session we encounter long hours of practice and a kind of solitude, yet we are surrounded by other people. They rustle and cough and sometimes behave quite differently from how we would like. They distract us, get to what we want first, delay us, ignore our needs, and interrupt our sleep with their snoring. With a state of mind that expects to be things to be a certain way or is demanding of all our rights, large and small, we are sure to be hurt. People don't notice us. They pass us by and our needs go unnoticed. We must practice letting go of our preferences in favor of building our ability to hold the gift of harmony Harmony is not exactly created by intent. It is a fruit of practice. Nevertheless, it is helped along by intending to cause it. When we have it, we want it. Sometimes it's magical, a feeling in a group of people who get along. Sometimes it's constructed. A skillful person calms the waters of our troubled heart by speaking with good, insightful words that allow us to reflect on truth in action. It's like pausing in the middle of discomfort and tuning into a silent and beautiful present. a presence like the still, grounded coolness of a cave on a hot summer's day. With restraint, we can also practice the labor of holding our mindless tongue when our hissing inner snake wants to strike. We may feel these small efforts to be of little consequence, but we attach too little importance to the impact of the impotent, dissatisfied mind lurching into disagreeable speech and conflict with others out of pure moodiness. On closer look, this dissatisfied mind is actually starving for the very kindness that is rejected by impatient speech. At a time when we feel irritated, we long for the comforting touch of a friendly hand. The pure hearted one having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desire, is not born again into this world. I did some research into the phrase is not born again into this world and found that it is more meaningfully understood as opening the gate of realization in one's own practice life. This mysterious threshold is something we all hear about and may even wonder if it refers to actual lived experience. It seems so remote from daily life somehow, even while training in a Zen monastery where path and goal are our daily bread. So why does the Buddha refer to not being born again into this world? I look at this description of clarity of vision and a pure heart freed from all sense desire as an inspiration and a stepping stone to a way of experiencing ourselves in the world. I believe the Buddha spoke of experiencing a way that releases us from the feeling of bondage and inner freedom to be cherished. I feel blessed to have come in contact recently with the wisdom teachings of Sister Ayakema, Kema, a German woman who studied widely and became a nun and then a teacher in a Theravadan tradition based in Sri Lanka. She eventually opened a monastery in Germany where she taught for the last few few years of her life back in the 90s. I'd like to read a selection from a Dharma talk she gave that was published by the Buddha Dharma Education Association. Instead of being attentive to what is now, we are hoping for something better to come, maybe tomorrow. Instead of being attentive to what is now, we are hoping for something better to come, maybe tomorrow. Then, when tomorrow arrives, it has to be the next day again, because it still wasn't perfect enough. If we were to change this pattern in our thinking habits and rather become attentive to what is, then we would find something to satisfy us. But when we are looking at that which doesn't exist yet, more perfect, more wonderful, more satisfying, then we can't. We can't find anything at all because we are looking for that which isn't there. The Buddha spoke about two kinds of people, the ordinary worldling and the noble person. Obviously, it is a worthwhile ambition to become a noble person. But if we keep looking for it, at some future time, then it will escape us. The difference between a noble one and a worldling is the experience of path and fruit. The first moment of this super mundane consciousness is termed stream entry, and the person who experiences it is a stream winner. If we put that into our mind as a goal in the future, it will not come about. Because we are not using all our energy and strength to recognize each moment. Only in the recognition of each moment can a path moment occur. The path moment has a quality of non being. This is such a relief and changes one's worldview so totally that it is quite understandable that the Buddha made such a distinction between a worldling and a noble one. While the meditative absorptions bring with them a feeling of oneness, of unity, the path moment does not even contain that. The moment of fruition subsequent to the path moment is the understood experience and results in a turned around vision of existence. The new understanding recognizes every thought, every feeling as suffering or dukkha. The most elevated thought, the most sublime feeling still has this quality. Only when there is nothing is there no suffering. There is nothing internal or external that contains the quality of total satisfactoriness. Because of such an inner vision, the passion for wanting anything is discarded. All has been seen for what it really is, and nothing can give the happiness that arises through the practice of the path and its results. The nibbanic element cannot be truly described as bliss, because bliss has a connotation of exhilaration. We use the word bliss for the meditative absorption, where it includes a sense of excitement. The Nibbanic element does not recognize bliss because all that arises is seen as suffering. The bliss of Nibbana may give one the impression that one may find perfect happiness, but the opposite is true. One finds that there is nothing, and therefore no more unhappiness, only peace. To look for path and fruit will not bring them about, because only moment-to-moment awareness can do so. This awareness will eventually culminate in real concentration, where one can let go of thinking and be totally absorbed. We can drop the meditation subject at that time. We need not push it aside. It falls away of its own accord, and absorption and awareness occurs. If there has to be an ambition in one's life, this is the only worthwhile one. All others will not bring fulfillment. One doesn't have to force oneself to give up skeptical doubt. What is there to doubt when one has experienced the truth? This nun, Ayakema, lived a sacred life and gave so much. I find it hard to understand how she can have learned so much and become so giving in one short lifetime. And I am deeply inspired by her teaching. Studying the Dharma is a gift. May we pause to acknowledge it. The key to fulfillment thus lies in the very session precautions themselves. Following each breath, each moment of awareness, each footstep, each sweep of the broom, attending to each moment with kindness and continuity of practice can bring us to a state of such concentration that we may be released from doubt and fear. Shugen Roshi often speaks in his words of encouragement about the need to use our time well during the session retreat, especially to think of going throughout the day in attentiveness to each passing moment. This means all our practices can come together and in their very simplicity, help us to receive an unlooked for gift. In not holding to fixed views, we become flexible in our minds and more agreeable to letting go of thoughts. This willingness to enter practice for its own sake is the first step on the path of understanding. May we all be free from suffering. Thanks for listening. Did you know that Zen Mountain Monastery is live-streaming all Dharma Talks and daily Zazen during the coronavirus quarantine? Visit our website to learn about all the online programs being offered at this time. Just go to ZMM.org and click on the link at the very top of the page, or scroll down and click on Retreats.